Well, it is great to be with you today, and I am so excited to be able to worship with you this morning. My name is Joe, and I, along with Pastor RJ and Pastor Tony, we have the privilege to be a part of this church and to serve you all as pastors here in this place. Everything that we do at Faith is about bringing Jesus into our relationships and into your relationships, and I'm so excited to be able to be with you this morning. A couple of things I want to make sure that all of you know about. First, for those of you who are new or newer to Faith, if you have a few moments today after the service, we're going to be in room 103. We want to help you get connected here. We want to help you build relationships here. And we want to help you especially to grow in your relationship with Jesus here. In short, we want to get you beyond Sunday. So if you've got a couple of minutes, we will watch your kids for you. We have snacks for you. We will spend less than an hour together in room 103. We'll answer your questions and we'll help you take a next step in getting connected here at Faith. And then later on, on Wednesday happening this week, you may have heard us talking about this last weekend on Easter Sunday. This Wednesday is our night of service. And this month for our night of service, we're going to be packaging a minimum of 10,000 meals together all of which are going to go to help people in our world. A third of them are going to stay here in Troy in our food pantry at Faith. Another third are going to go to a national food bank. The following third are actually going to go to an international food bank, to a region in our world that is in desperate need of food and food supplies right now. We need your help. The way we need your help is for you to come on Wednesday on, at 6.30 p.m. Help us to package all of these 10,000 meals and get them ready to be distributed. The way that you can find out more about this, you take a moment in that seat back in front of you, there's that QR code, just scan that with your phone. You'll get our Church Center app. You can sign up there, and you're going to look for this uh, picture right here. You're going to click on this picture under Signups. It'll get you all the information you need, or you can just simply stop, and I will give you a card after service today that will let you sign up nice and easy as well. Well, most of us know a few Bible stories, but the truth is very few of us actually know the story of the Bible, meaning how we actually got the Bible to begin with. And knowing how we got the Bible is almost as important as knowing what's in the Bible. It's the backstory of the Bible that actually sheds enormous, enormous light on the stories that are found in the Bible. Now, the truth is, when you're a kid, right, um, you don't actually care about this probably at all. Um, but as you get older and you become a teenager and later on, certainly as an adult, this becomes an enormously, enormously important aspect of what it means to follow Jesus. Because if you don't know the story of the Bible, then it's very, very difficult to actually embrace the stories that are in the Bible. Or to say it another way, if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's also very easy to discount the stories that are in the Bible. In fact, some of you um, have perhaps walked away from your faith. Maybe you have friends or family um, or kids even perhaps that have walked away fr from their faith. And again, um, that's understandable, right? Because you don't understand the story or the context of, of the Bible. In fact, maybe if you're honest, um, you'd kind of say you're not even really a church person and the only reason you're here right now um, is because maybe you were with us last weekend for Easter. Uh, maybe a friend invited you today. Um, and you are, you're kind of curious um, how it is that we actually uh, got the Bible and, and why we believe the Bible. Um, and see, the problem, the big problem really for all of us is that the way that the world got its Bible is not the way that you got your Bible. Right, Because the Bible you got, it came with chapters and verses. It had headings and footnotes. Right, It had page numbers. Um, it was cross-referenced. Right? It was probably in English. Um, it, it, was, it had a concordance in the back. 
um, right? It had a bunch of maps in, in the back, right? It was all bound together nice and, and neat in one handy-dandy package. But see, that's not the way that the world got its Bible. And, and if you received your first Bible like a, a, as a child like I did, um, then truthfully, you were probably told many of the same things that I was told. You were told um, that this is God's word, that it's true, and this is how you are supposed to live your life. And if you are like me, then you've always kind of held the Bible um, in high regard and in high esteem. And, and the truth is, um, I get it, um, I was admittedly kind of an odd kid. Um, because I actually read the Bible at every age and stage of my life growing up. I read the Bible when I was in elementary school. And I read the Bible when I was in middle school. I actually read the Bible when I was in high school. I read the Bible when I was in college. And again, your situation um, might be very, very different. Maybe, uh, maybe you weren't ever given a Bible as a child. Or, or maybe you actually grew up in a tradition or in a, uh, a religious setting where uh, you weren't encouraged to read the Bible. In fact, Autumn and I have a lot of friends um, that we've made over the years who have told us that in their background and in their tradition, they were actually told not to read the Bible because that was the priest's job. Um, or maybe you weren't even raised in a Christian tradition at all. Um, but even so, right, regardless of what your background is, the truth is all of us, we all have some ideas of what the Bible is and what the Bible isn't. Right? And all of us, we kind of bring these ideas from the past into our present and into our adulthood. Now, for many of us, um, if the Bible says it, that still settles it, right? But see, for others of us, even for those of us who have been raised with the Bible, for many of us, it's just not quite that simple anymore. Because somewhere along the way, somebody pointed out to you um, what else the Bible says, Right? The things that they don't actually talk about in Sunday school. In fact, maybe it was one of those sections or a couple of those sections of the Bible that you brought to the attention of your parents or maybe to the attention of your pastor or your priest, um, and they didn't want to talk about it. And, and so that kind of left you in a very, very difficult position because, um, because, because again, you're, you're an honest person. Right? And, and you did not know how to reconcile what it is that you found in here um, with what it is that you knew and what you've experienced and, and what you've seen and how you've lived uh, your life. And, and, and again, you couldn't just um, pretend like you didn't know these things and, and you couldn't just look the other way. Um, and so maybe you walked away. Um, or maybe perhaps you're considering walking away. And so regardless of where you are, regardless of what your experience with the Bible has been, um, the truth is this is a hugely important series for all of us. And you may be very, very surprised to learn that the story of the Bible does not, in fact, begin in the beginning. The story of the Bible actually begins near the end, and it begins with a man by the name of Luke, a man who was, in fact, a first century Greek. He was a doctor. And Luke decided to put in the time necessary in order to document all the events and all the activities surrounding this individual named Jesus for the sake of his friend Theophilus, who, like many people in his day and in his region of the world, um, Theophilus had heard a lot about Jesus. He heard about the stories of Jesus. He had heard the teachings of Jesus. He had heard about many of the miracles of Jesus. He had even heard that Jesus was crucified and then risen from the dead, in which that led to Theophilus um, believing that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Theophilus put his faith in Jesus. 
But Theophilus wanted all the information. He wanted all the details. He wanted an orderly account of everything that took place surrounding the life of Jesus. And so Luke decided that for the sake of his friend Theophilus, he would um, put in the time necessary to document all of those things in a very orderly sort of way. And this is how Luke actually begins his account of the life of Jesus. Luke tells us this. He says that many, many have undertaken to draw up an account or come up with a document um, that explains or that records the events, the things that have happened, the things that have been fulfilled among us, right? Meaning, right, there was in fact something that was worth documenting. And, and see, this is, this is really important and we kind of blow by this um, really quick and, and we miss this. Um, Luke tells us that he wasn't the only one who was doing this, that many people, Right? Many people, not just Luke, many people had actually decided, they had tried. Many individuals were recording the events surrounding the life of Jesus. He continues and he says this. He says that um, with this in mind, right, with this in mind, next screen please. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, right, the beginning of Jesus' life. That's what he's talking about. I too along with a whole lot of other people, Luke says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, uh, most excellent is not a line from Bill and Ted. This is actually a title um, that was given in Rome to very high-ranking, um, very public Roman officials. Oftentimes it was a title used by governors, such as Governor Felix and Governor Festus. And this name Theophilus, it literally means loved by God. And so very likely Luke is writing this account to a first century individual, a high-ranking Roman official, possibly a governor, who has now become a follower of Jesus and who wanted all the details surrounding Jesus. And this is really important. This is one of the things that we skip over. When Luke was writing his account, Luke had no idea that he was writing the Bible, right? Luke had no concept um, that this book right here would ever exist. Luke had no idea that 2,000 years later, his account, along with a bunch of other accounts, would all be combined together along with the Jewish ancient scriptures, and that they would all be assembled in one simple handy-to-dandy, easy-to-carry device that we refer to as a book, right? Which in his day was called a codex, right? Luke had no idea that that would ever happen. Luke was just putting together an account for the sake of his friend Theophilus, of all the eyewitness testimony that Luke had compiled and received. And again, this is one of the things that we miss when we look into this. Luke himself actually tells us how and why the Bible began and the story of the Bible, why that began in the first place. Luke tells us this. When it became clear to the people in the first century that Jesus could not possibly have been who they thought he was because, I mean, after all, he was just crucified, right? How can the Messiah be crucified? When it became clear to the people in the first century that Jesus could not possibly be who he claimed to be, that was the moment that the story of the Bible actually began. Because Jesus claimed way too much about himself. At the center of everything Jesus were the claims of Jesus. Certainly Jesus did a lot of wondrous things and Jesus said a lot of wonderful things. 
But at the center of all of it were these fantastic claims that Jesus made about himself. But now the Romans had crucified Jesus. He was dead, so he could not possibly in their minds be the Messiah. But this is interesting because Luke tells us that he is recording all of these fabulous events, right? These amazing events that happened. And this is weird because the Romans literally crucified hundreds, thousands of people before they ever crucified Jesus. And a bunch of those people actually claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. In fact, a second century historian by the name of Josephus, he even documents many of the individuals that the Romans executed, people who also said that they were the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, people like Judah the Galilean, Thudius, as well as an unnamed Egyptian Jew. But interestingly enough, even though all of them claim to be the Messiah, the very same individual that Jesus claimed to be, we have absolutely nothing recorded about any of these individuals except their names, their claims, and their deaths. History records nothing else about them. And yet for some reason, Luke, as well as many, many other individuals, they detail for us all kinds of individual activities and events surrounding the life of Jesus. In fact, Luke tells us that a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, a very famous man, along with another very famous individual named Nicodemus, two individuals everybody in the first century in this region of the world would have recognized. These two men actually went to the cross of Jesus and they took Jesus' body down from the cross, not because they believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be, but because they were so disappointed that clearly Jesus was not who they were expecting. In fact, Luke goes on to tell us this about Joseph of Arimathea, that he came and he took Jesus' body down, that he wrapped it in a linen cloth, and then he placed it inside a tomb, a tomb that was cut into rock. It was a tomb in which no one had ever been laid. See, Luke gives us all these details because he's detail-oriented, right? He's a doctor, and he is trying to write a very orderly and detailed account for the sake of his friend, Theophilus. He continues and he says this. He says, there were some women who had come with Jesus from Galilee. They were there. They saw Jesus crucified, and they also followed Joseph. And they too saw the tomb and how Jesus' body was laid in it. And then these women, they went home and they prepared spices and perfumes. Why? Because they were going to come back to this tomb and they were going to re-embalm Jesus' body. And why in the world were they going to re-embalm Jesus' body? Because Jesus was dead. And everybody expected that Jesus was going to stay dead. And in this moment, and this is, again, so important, in this moment, there are no Christians. There are no Jesus followers. There is no church. There is no hope. There is no Bible. There is just some disappointed disciples and some very scared women, all of which are afraid for their own lives. Because between Rome and the temple, the Jesus movement has just been crushed out of existence. And if the story would have ended here, please don't miss this, there would actually be no story because there would be nothing that happened. There would be nothing 
to document because Jesus would have been nothing more than the latest wannabe Messiah in a long list of wannabe Jewish messiahs. And we would know no more about him than we do Judah the Galilean or Thudius or the unnamed Egyptian Jew. But Luke, Luke documented the life of Jesus because the story of Jesus did not end on a Roman cross. If the story had actually ended there, there would be no story. But Luke tells us that the reason he was a Jesus follower, the reason that Theophilus is a high-ranking Roman official in the first century, the reason that Theophilus was a Jesus follower, is because Jesus was actually seen alive. And once Jesus was seen alive, then his followers, they came out of hiding. And then they too, his Jesus followers, they were also arrested. And when they were arrested, they faced down the very same people who had just recently arrested and crucified and executed Jesus in the first place. Luke even goes so far as to document the conversations that takes place between the people who arrested Jesus and the people who were following Jesus. Um, these two individuals uh, um, named Peter, who is the head of Jesus' disciples, and Caiaphas, who was the high priest that handed Jesus over to be executed in the first place. Luke tells us that Peter said to Caiaphas, Caiaphas, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of this. Caiaphas, you... You handed Jesus over to be killed, and you disowned Jesus before Pilate, even though Pilate decided to let him go. Caiaphas, you disowned the holy and the righteous one. Caiaphas, you actually asked that a murderer be released to you, and you killed the author of life. But God has raised this Jesus from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. We didn't read about this, Caiaphas. We didn't hear about this. We actually saw this. And as a result of seeing it, the Jesus movement, the church, began. But there was still no Bible. In fact, Luke goes on to document the next 35 years of what happens after the resurrection in a book that we refer to as the book of Acts, A-C-T-S, which is actually short for Acts of the Apostles. In this document, he, he records conversations, Luke records conversations with Peter, conversations with um, James, Jesus' younger brother, who incidentally did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God until after he saw his older brother risen from the dead. Luke documents and he records for us conversations um, with the Apostle Paul. He even traveled with the Apostle Paul and Luke records for us the growth and the spread of the church all throughout the, the Mediterranean rim. And again, um, this is the, one of the things I, I just don't want you to miss um, because we never really stop to think about this. But Luke tells us right up front, right, he tells us that many, right, many, many have actually undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have happened amongst us. And if you're one of those people who has kind of walked away from your faith, or you've walked away from Christianity, or if you kind of have, have walked away from, from the church, um, if we were sitting down together someplace, right, having coffee, and, and I wasn't like poking at you, if you just uh, wanted to tell me your story and share with me what happened in your life and why it is that you um, personally walked away, um, listen, the truth is, I would probably look at you and say, okay, who can blame you? I, I get it. I understand. 
I just want to ask you one question, right? Because I'll be honest, I want you back, right? That's my motive, I'll be honest. I want you to come back. And so here's the question I would ask you. Why so many? Why so many? Why would so many individuals, right, take the time to document in detail, right, one singular event that happens in the city of Jerusalem in the first century? I mean, it's the armpit of the Roman Empire. Nobody cared about what happened in the city of Jerusalem. Why in the world would so many people choose to document that whole series of events? And see, the answer to that question is undeniable. It's because something extraordinary happened. Not something extraordinary was written. Don't miss that. That would come later. Something extraordinary happened. Something had to have happened in order to make the many want to document it in the first place. And so, a number of the followers of Jesus, Peter and Paul and John and Luke and Mary and Martha and the other Mary and Matthew and James, they realized that, listen, we're not getting any younger. And their lives, as well as the other lives of the followers of Jesus, they were constantly, constantly being threatened. And so many of them, they sat down to write or they sat down to dictate their experiences and their accounts with Jesus. The Apostle Peter, he sat down and he actually dictated his account of following Jesus to a man by the name of John Mark that we know simply as Mark. In fact, a second century historian by the name of Papias, he substantiates that Mark's account of Jesus came from the lips of Peter. And Mark's account of Jesus is exactly what you would expect from a fisherman. It's very short. It's very fast-paced, right? It's action, action, action. It's, it's very, um, very event-driven. And Mark actually recorded his document from Peter in the 50s, right? Just 20 years, just 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. Another was Matthew, Matthew was Jewish. In fact, Matthew was one of the 12. And so because Matthew is Jewish, he decided to write his account to other Jewish people. And so consequently, Matthew cites Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage. He quotes Old Testament prophecies. And he says, look, all the law, all the prophets, it all pointed towards Jesus. Jesus really is who Jesus claimed to be. He is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And then there's John. And in many ways, John's account stands out in very, very stark contrast to all the other accounts of the life of Jesus. Because John sits down as an old man. And John knows that a bunch of other people have already dictated or written their accounts of following Jesus. And again, John's not thinking Bible. right? John's not even thinking gospel. In fact, we might actually ask John, because again, he's an old man at this point. He's been through horrible experiences. He's lost so many people that he's loved. Um, they've, people even tried to execute John. They tried to execute him by boiling him in oil, and he survived. And so we might say to John, John, like, why, why bother? Like, why would you bother? You know all these accounts have already been written about Jesus. Why, why take the time? Why go through all the hassle to get someone to, to record your experience? With Jesus. 
And see, regardless of what um, your background with the church has been or your um, background with the Bible has been, uh, this is the part that John tells us that I just I don't want you to miss because John actually answers that question of why. He tells us why he went through all the pain and all the time and all the work to actually record his experience with Jesus. He tells us this, that Jesus, Jesus performed many other signs. John's saying, okay, I haven't written about everything that Jesus did. I just gave you this long list of some of the things that Jesus did. But I want you to know up front, Jesus actually did more things than I'm telling you about. He did them in the presence. These weren't done in secret. And he did them in the presence of his disciples. And when John says disciples, he doesn't mean the 12. He's actually referring to the hundreds and hundreds of people that followed Jesus between the, his baptism in the Jordan River and the time that Jesus was crucified and then eventually resurrected. John says that these other things that Jesus did, they are not recorded in this book. Right? And when John uses this phrase, this book, he is not referring to the Bible. He is referring to the document that he is writing. And John is saying, there are many other things that I did not choose to write about. They don't show up in my account of the life of Jesus. But then he says something that's so important to all of us. He says this, but these, the ones that I have chosen to write about, these specific events, they are written. Right? In other words, John is saying to all of us, listen, as an old man, as I sit back and I look on my life and I look at everything I've experienced in my life, all the hurt, all the pain, all the unanswered questions, I just want you to know that my faith is still intact. My faith is not intact because of what's happening to me now. My faith is intact because of what I've experienced, because of what I've seen, because of what I saw. And so John says, I'm writing my account to future generations. I'm writing my account to make sure that those who would come after me, that these are written that you, those who would come after John, because you is you, and you is you, and you is you. You is all of us. And John says, I have written my account in such a way that if this is all you ever hear, if this is the only document you ever come across, I mean, you have to picture this. John has no idea if this document that he's written, is it going to survive a day or a week or a month? He has no, he can't even begin to fathom that this document would survive for a decade, much less 2,000 years. And again, John is not thinking Bible. He's just thinking, I want future generations to know what I saw. I want future generations to know what I have experienced. I want future generations to know what gives me hope when everything around me looks just so incredibly hopeless. These are written, John says, so that you, you, and you may believe. But believe what? I mean, okay, John, what, what, you, did all, you put all this time in, you're looking back, you, you want us to see it, you want us to get it. What is it, John, what is it that you actually want us to believe? Now, back to us for a minute. If you would say that you are someone who has walked away from their faith, you've walked away from your belief in God, um, the truth is that could have happened for all kinds of reasons. 
right? Something that you saw, um, something that you went through, um, something that was done to you, um, something that you saw done to somebody else, right? It could have happened for all kinds of reasons. But at the end of the day, um, what all of us who have experienced that would have in common, we'd probably all say something like this, okay? Um, Joe, I'm glad all this is good for you. Like, I'm glad it works for, for you. That, that's fine. Um, but Joe, you just, I, just don't, I just don't believe it. I, I just don't believe it. Here's my question. Because this is actually John's question. What is the it that you don't believe? Because see, John... As someone who spent three and a half years with Jesus, who saw Jesus, who spent time with Jesus, who listened to Jesus with his own words, who ears, and saw Jesus walk out of a tomb, John is about to tell all of us the only it that actually matters. John says this, the implications of this are staggering. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah to the Jews, that he is the son of God to the Greeks and to the Romans and to all of us who live in the West. And by believing this, you may have life in his name. Regardless of what you've seen, regardless of what you've been told, regardless of your past, John says, this is the only it that matters. If this is the only document you ever read, John is saying, if this is the only account of the life of Jesus that you ever get, if this is all you ever have, this is all you ever need. The implications of this statement in John's document are staggering and amazing. And consequently, it should come as no surprise that for literally generations and generations and generations, people have been told, just read this one book. You don't have to read all this. You don't have to understand all. I just want you to read one thing. I just want you to read this one book. In fact, many of you, many of you probably um, were given this book by an individual who cares about you or another individual and just were told to read it. And by reading this book, you came to believe that Jesus is, in fact, who Jesus claims to be. Because John says, I, I want to summarize it for you. Let me, let me put all of this in, into perspective. Let me kind of wrap it up right for you. John says this. He actually quotes Jesus as Jesus is having a conversation um, with this man, Nicodemus. He tells us this. He says, okay, I want you to understand God, he, he loved the whole world. God loved the Greek world and he loved the Roman world. God loved the Jewish world. God loved the pagan world. God actually loved the barbarian world. God loved the whole world so much. And I, John says, I have been eyeball to eyeball with the individual that I believe is the son of God. He is literally God in the flesh. And whoever believes, whoever believes, whoever places their faith or their trust in him, that person will not perish. They will not be lost to God. In fact, John goes on to explain, they will begin to experience a new life in this life, what John would call eternal life. John says, if that is all you ever hear, that is all you ever need. 
And what's so fascinating is that so many people have literally heard of this book alone. And that was enough for them to understand and to know who Jesus is. In fact, if this is all you ever hear, this is enough for you to know that God has done something in the world for you. And that brings us to the end of the first century. But there's still no Bible. And yet even though there's no Bible, there are literally hundreds and then thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians. There are thousands of Jewish Christians and thousands of Roman Christians. There's thousands of Greek Christians. There's thousands of Indian Christians. There's thousands of Arabic Christians. There's thousands of Asian Christians. And they're all over the world by the end of the first century. And there are copies, and there are, first there are dozens, and then there are hundreds, and then there are thousands of, of, of these copies that have been meticulously copied, copies of these ancient, ancient documents that are bundled together. And some people have a gospel, and some people have a couple of gospels. Um, some people have a part of one and a part of another. And this is where you have to put yourself into the story. I mean, imagine being a follower of Jesus in the first or the second or the third century, um, and you've only heard the stories of Jesus. And yet somebody shows up in your neighborhood or in your village or a relative comes to visit, and, and they say to you, they say, look, look, we actually have, we actually have a complete copy of John's account of his life with Jesus. Can you even imagine how precious that would be to you? Look, we actually have, we have a copy. We've got an actual copy right here of Peter's account as he followed Jesus. Can you even imagine how valuable those documents were to you or to the people in your neighborhood or your family or your village? Some 250 years before there ever was a Bible, there were these precious documents that gave people a picture, a glimpse, details of, and quotes from their master and their savior, Jesus. But still, there's no Bible. From the very beginning, these documents were each considered to be valuable and reliable. And eventually each of them was considered to be inspired and sacred. It is no surprise that from the very, very beginning, each of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were considered to be sacred scripture. 250 years before one of these ever existed. But the empire, as Christians grew and spread and moved throughout the Roman Empire, the empire got increasingly suspicious of the Christians. And the reason the empire grew suspicious of the Christians was not because of what the Christians believed, it was because of what the Christians did not believe. Because the Christians did not believe in the Roman gods, and the Christians did not acknowledge Caesar as Lord. They acknowledged Jesus as Lord. And this made Caesar angry, and this made the Roman gods angry. And so from time to time, the Christians in the empire got too much attention from the empire. This culminated in 303 AD when the Roman emperor Diocletian issued a series of edicts. And he, he commanded that all 
places of Christian gathering be destroyed. That it was from this point forward now illegal for Christians to assemble in public. He ordered that all the bishops, all the Christian bishops, all of them needed to be rounded up. They must be forced to recant and then offer sacrifices first to the Roman gods and then second to Caesar. And any bishop who refused to do this would be put to death. And then perhaps most, um, most destructive and worst of all, Diocletian ordered that all Christian documents were to be burned. And if you were found to be in possession of any part of one of these documents, then you could lose your life right after you watched your wife and your daughter and your son lose their lives as well. And yet even through all that, Christianity continued to grow and to spread throughout the empire. And see, this is amazing because you never stop to think about this. But why in the world, why in the world would Christians, why would hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, why would they risk their lives? Why would they risk their families' lives for the sake of these documents? Because what these documents contained, they believed was absolutely true. And that they were an accurate and reliable and verifiable record of what God did in our world in the first century. When God showed up in a body, in the person of Jesus Christ. Hundreds and thousands of Christians risked and lost their lives to preserve these documents. Not to preserve this, but to preserve these. Because this didn't even exist yet. And that brings us to 324 AD, when the Roman Empire Emperor Constantine became the undisputed ruler of the Roman Empire, and Constantine reversed all of the edicts issued by Diocletian. He allowed Christians to once again gather in public. He made Christian worship legal throughout the empire. And, most important of all, he allowed Christian scholars for the very first time to come together in the open and to bring with them their documents without fear of losing their precious, sacred documents. And for the very first time in history, Christian scholars from all over the empire were able to gather in the same place and they brought with them the documents that we would come to know of and think of as the New Testament. And finally, finally the stage was set for the assembly of the very first Bible. But there's still so much more to the story. And that's where we're going to pick it up together next week. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Father, as we hear and as we're reminded, for those of us who know the story of how the Bible came into existence, and Father, for, for those of us who are hearing this for the first time, Father, it's absolutely undeniable that something happened that something happened that was worth documenting. 
And Father, it's absolutely amazing that you would preserve this ancient, ancient collection of, of documents, these scriptures as they would come to be known. Father, that you would ensure that future generations would hear the story of your love through the person of Jesus. Father, that we would have the opportunity today in our world to gather together to hear the story without fear of losing our lives, without fear of our loved ones losing their lives. And yet, Father, that, that is not something that's lost to us because we know that that's not true for everyone in our world. And so, Father, I pray very specifically um, for two groups of people. For those of us who are here today and we're asking questions and we want to know really what is true and can we trust you, Father? Can we trust what's been written in this book, this ancient book? Father, for that group, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit and you would help us to know what is true. Give us the courage to ask our questions. Father, I pray especially that we would be open-minded enough to actually hear an answer. And Father, for those people who gather in our world to this day under threat of persecution simply because they possess one of these documents. Father, I pray that you would provide for them and that you would protect them. And most of all, that your church would continue to grow in our world, not because of us, but because of you, because of your son, and because of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray and we ask all of this in Jesus' name.